Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Uh, the symposium is time for the day before open day to show people the amazing uh, things that undergraduate students do at our university. And it's also an opportunity for our students to practice skills at, uh, uh, at research translation, as it's not enough, just enough to do research, they all do amazing research, but they have to, to uh, all modern academics have to communicate their findings to a broad audience. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, the Vice-Chancellor, uh, Professor Brian Schmidt. Uh, many people say uh, there's no need to introduce somebody, but if you've not heard his name, you've really been living on another planet because uh, uh, the Vice-Chancellor received the 2011 uh, Nobel Prize for Physics, uh, providing evidence that the expansion of uh, the universe is accelerating. Uh, Professor Schmidt uh, got a PhD from Harvard in 93 and shortly thereafter moved on to ANU's uh, Mount Stromlo Observatory where he was pushed and nurtured as a, a, as a young researcher. And given this event is trying to push and nurture young undergraduate researchers, I can think of no better person to launch a symposium. And uh, would you put your hands together to, to welcome the Vice-Chancellor. Thank you. Thank you, Boyd, and thank you one and all for coming out on your Friday evening. But uh, the great thing about knowledge is it's interesting and it's worthwhile spending a Friday, after, or a Friday evening on. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we meet and pay my respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people past and present. They've been here for more than 21,000 years, and that's something uh, that uh, is worthwhile respecting as we think about what we hear tonight, including our first speaker, who I think will be doing something uh, not exactly about that, but in the same vein. This year uh, is in our 21,000th birthday, but it's our 70th birthday here at ANU. And uh, as our national university, one of the things that strikes me that we can do is we can provide an education here that is really unique within Australia. And that's one of the things that uh, uh, I'm really keen to emphasize. And one way to do that is through the PHB program. The PHB program is really here to set you guys up to, to be really challenged, but to give you opportunities. Uh, opportunities to work with some of our best academics, but also to have the chance to come out and tell your uh, fellow students what you're doing. Because in the end, what universities do better than anything else is to bring peers together. Because you will learn far more from each other than you will learn from the likes of me. I help, your teachers help, but you will learn from each other. And it's always that way, and anyone who thinks it's anything else well, we'll learn over time that that's the way uh, the world works. So the PHB, of course, is sort of our mini version of a PhD. It is, uh, you don't have to do philosophy to do it. Uh, the philosophy of, of, of knowledge is really at the core of what we're trying to do. And it brings together arts, social sciences, humanities, Asia-Pacific studies, 
and sciences more broadly into this uh, comprehensive undergraduate program, which I know is, can cause us some stress, you know, some stress, but I encourage you not to look at it through that lens. I look, I look at it as an opportunity, not as a chance to be stressed, okay? So PhD uh, students are required to complete research projects throughout their uh, time as undergraduates, and we encourage these to be on the frontiers of knowledge, just like all research is meant to be. And we have had some PhD students do some remarkable papers here that have been major international works, not just a paper in an international journal, but actual major works that will be part of their career for the rest of their, their lives. Over the next hour, you're gonna get a chance to listen to people over a whole variety of subjects. And again, one of the things that universities in Australia especially tend to do is they tend to, tend to silo and, you know, you're going to work in the anthropology of, you know, people from Papua New Guinea and that's it. Well, that's fine, but if you really wanna do that well, you may wanna be listening to people in other disciplines who have other knowledge that might be useful, and vice versa. Uh, it is the intersections of knowledge where the excitement is, and we forget that. And so one of the things that I wanna do here at ANU, and this is an example of how we're working on it, is to bring the different parts of the university working on things and bring us together like we were in our early days when we were the only thing to do on a Friday night in Canberra was to be at ANU because there was literally nothing else to do in Canberra. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's a fair bit more to do in Canberra uh, tonight, and that's one of the reasons I'm gonna have to uh, listen to the first talk and move on to the opening of the Canberra Writers' Festival because you guys are competing uh, with the author of The Life of Pi tonight. Uh, and this is why we didn't get as many people to The Life of Pi thing as we were expecting, as uh, you guys are all here. So uh, the diverse range of topics, uh, I, as I said, I would be here spending my Friday night if I didn't have to go do that. You're going to get a chance to listen to some really interesting things, but use this as a chance at the beginning of the conversation, not the end. Be prepared to think outside, you know, the walls. And as students, you are the catalyst of change. And so I want the whole university to do this, but the way I plan is to get them to do it is through you guys because you drag people across their boundaries because people love the enthusiasm and the youth that you bring, uh, and that is something that I'm prepared to follow as my colleagues are. So you have an incredible catalytic role here, which I think is easy to forget about. And so I really appreciate you going and, and, and doing this, but I'm also saying you've got a responsibility, which is not just to drag your peers, but to drag your professors around the university and get them to engage more broadly. It's easy to forget about it. Uh, in typical PHP fashion, we have nibbles to be provided afterwards, uh, and those are at the end of the presentations. This is a little trick we use to keep people on to the end uh, so they don't wander out. Uh, and uh, therefore, uh, I'm not promising there will be uh, five-star uh, uh, bits of uh, food, but they should be reasonable for you guys. Uh, that's something we're going to invest in next year is uh, uh, really fancy uh, ad nibbles at the end. But uh, with no, uh, with, without further ado, I would like to declare the inaugural PHB symposium open. I do feel like I need a bottle of champagne, uh, but there is a virtual bottle of champagne that is just broken against the back wall, 
And I will now handle, hand over to Boyd uh, to start the festivities and our first speaker. Thank you. The symposium has got, we've got 10 speakers uh, looking forward to today. They're from all the programs across campus, from the science program and the College of Arts and Pacific, uh, Asia and Pacific Studies and, um, and the science program more generally. As, as the VC indicated, uh, the convener of the science program, Ricky Mathesius and myself, will join the student presenters in the foyer immediately afterwards. I would ask you to save your questions, if you have any, for, for the presenters, uh, to approach them in person, so we can get through quickly and get to the nibblies uh, as fast as possible. My day job is, uh, is working at the Centre for Aboriginal Economic Policy Research at the uh, Research School of Social Sciences. Hence, I would like to um, echo the Vice-Chancellor's acknowledgement of the Ngunnawal people um, and their elders past and present. We're meeting on Aboriginal land. Accordingly, it's, a, it's very appropriate to start with a presentation mapping native title by uh, Mia Sandgren, uh, the third year PhD art student working in collaboration with uh, Dr. Bruce uh, Doran from the Fenner School. This is a standard map of Australia. You are probably very familiar with it. This representation of space is considered quite accurate, and in many senses, it certainly is. Yet, maps like this one are based on a legal fiction, that of terra nullius, or land belonging to no one. This map, like all maps, perpetuates a certain view of the world. It was created from a certain perspective and with a certain purpose. It is a highly simplified, limited representation of space. Maps like this one have been used to have led to the perpetration of many injustices. This is the power of maps. My research investigated how maps might be used by Indigenous people to display, disseminate and ultimately defend their connection to and ownership of land. Tonight, I'm going to run through th three key characteristics of Australian Indigenous land tenure regimes, and I will discuss how these characteristics influence how we use and perceive maps. Firstly, Indigenous land ownership regimes existed prior to European settlement. Land tenure was conferred through use of space, kinship relationships, and ceremony. Land was passed down and knowledge of the songs and stories of the land acted like your title. Indigenous people belonged to the land just as much as the land belonged to Indigenous people. Indigenous people were dispossessed of their land at settlement and mapping contributed to this dispossession. This historical injustice means that efforts should be made to recognise Indigenous land tenure and return land to Indigenous people. <coughs> the second key point is that it has only recently, after the Mabo decision of 1992, been recognised that Indigenous people have legitimate legal claims to their land. Now, returning land is both a legal and a moral obligation. During native title hearings, maps are legally required. However, the maps are required to follow European mapping conventions and be accurate in the scientific sense of the word. They're supposed to look a little bit like this. 
This forces Indigenous people to present their worldview and their knowledge and their culture through a Western medium, a difficult and, I would argue, at times unfair requirement. The implication of this is that we must understand that different forms of mapping land ownership are legitimate. These representations of connection to country, such as this one, cannot be dismissed. They are a legal instrument and they can be pieces of evidence. That is, we must expand our understanding of what a map is and implement this understanding as we consider native title claims. Finally, we must consider the spatial and temporal nature of Indigenous land ownership. Indigenous land was not divided into discrete parcels of land with distinct boundaries. Rather, boundaries were diffuse and the territory of different groups overlapped. Land ownership was based on sets of sacred sites with ownership radiating from those points in the landscape. While it is important to adapt our understanding of maps, it is also possible to adapt European maps to show Indigenous values more appropriately, so that those values can be readily understood by Western and legal audiences. This is, there is ample technology available to do this appropriately, particularly in the form of an advanced spatial technique called fuzzy logic, an example of which I've shown here. It is also important to note that Indigenous knowledge is created through processes of negotiation and is very dynamic, often changing. For this reason, it is important to use technology to make maps that can be changed over time and that can be, that can be accessed by the appropriate custodians of that knowledge. As such, it is imperative that we involve Indigenous people in all mapping processes and do not outsource mapping entirely to technicians. In conclusion, there are many implications of my study of Indigenous mapping, land ownership and native title. In particular, I suggest that in order to unlock the power of maps to empower Indigenous people, we must understand the history of Indigenous people, land ownership and mapping broaden our understanding of what a map is, use technology to produce maps of fuzzy and dynamic values, and involve Indigenous people in all mapping processes. Thank you. I uh, had the privilege recently of uh, doing a, a trip around ANU uh, done by Bill Gamage, a noted uh, historian, who displayed that, uh, that, you know, just showed graphically how, how Indigenous uh, ownership has been, uh, is written in the landscape, and it's only appropriate that, uh, that we start writing it into the maps, basically. Uh, yeah, uh, so me as, me as talk is well taken. The next presentation is by a second year uh, science PhD student Lachlan Arthur is going to obviously had a misspent youth uh, playing Lego and he's going to uh, keep playing molecular Lego to help us explain the malaria parasite. Uh, parasite. So uh, would you welcome uh, Lachlan. So uh, tonight 
I just want you to take two main things away from my talk. So my title, How Can Playing Molecular Lego Help Us to Understand the Malaria Parasite? So with Molecular Lego, what I'm talking about here is a system called CRISPR-Cas9 systems. Uh, they're a really, really interesting thing. Uh, very new to biology, came about in about 2013. Um, I was lucky enough to meet the guy who designed them. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, it's about the biggest discovery in molecular biology since we uh, found out the structure of DNA. So an absolute huge thing. So if you're going to take anything away from tonight, remember that CRISPR is the future and you're going to be hearing a lot about it. And secondly, the malaria parasite. You've all probably heard of malaria before, but you probably aren't aware that it's a heavily understudied uh, area in medical science. Uh, when we think about medical research, the C word usually comes to mind, cancer. Um, and that gets a lot of money for a lot of reasons, a lot of political reasons behind that. Um, more than happy to discuss them later. Um, so if you have any questions, I'll answer them at the end, but I might get things underway by just introducing you to malaria. Um, so with malaria, there's over 200 million deaths per year, 100, uh, a, a million um, associated deaths uh, across the world. And with that, um, half the world is actually in a malaria endemic region. So in a malaria endemic region. So it is a huge issue across the world. Over 50% of all malaria-related deaths are due to the Plasmodium falciparum parasite, um, which induces severe malarial anemia. So you can have different kinds of um, malarial infections. You can have cerebral um, malaria, which affects the brain. Um, but the most common type that results in the most number of deaths is severe malarial anemia. Um, there are currently no effective malaria vaccines um, in use, and I say that bearing in mind that someone in the room probably has heard that there are malaria vaccines out there, but so far there are no effective ones. And also currently we're using drugs to treat malaria which are leading to resistant malaria parasites. So through using these CRISPR-Cas9 systems we're hoping to discover ways that we can overcome this resistance. So obviously it's not very ethical to test our malaria drugs on people and um, experiment on people. So we use rodent um, malaria parasites to examine the parasites. Um, so the, the parasite that I was using is known as Plasmodium shibauti. Um, why is, why is it a good thing to use? Um, basically, it models severe malarial anemia very accurately. The cons of it are that it's very, very, very difficult to work with. I've spent many hours working in a lab dealing with it, and I can tell you it is a really nasty piece of work. Um, so unfortunately, there hasn't been a whole lot of work done with it, but I guess here with the PHB, we're not about doing things that are easy. We're about doing things that are practical and can change the world and do some really awesome things. So that's why my project was targeting um, Plasmodium shibauti. So the aim, we really just want to find out more about this parasite. How does it work? What does it do? How can we kill it, basically? Um, so to do that, we're hoping to use a CRISPR-Cas9 system. And what we're going to do is insert a green fluorescent, fluorescent protein into its genome. Um, and what that will do is basically make it glow in the dark. That's not necessarily what we want the system to do eventually, and it's not going to help us find out a whole, whole lot. But it is really cool, and it's a starting point. <laughs> So, and we also want to make the construct that's going to make these glow-in-the-dark parasites uh, available to other researchers and easy to manipulate so it can do other things because although making them glow-in-the-dark is cool, we want it to do other things too. Um, and then hopefully by doing this, we'll be able to understand the genes, the gene clusters and the proteins of the parasite so we can just start to get to understand it a little bit more. So what is CRISPR? Uh, CRISPR stands for Clustered, Regularly Interspaced, Short, Palindromic Repeats. Um, and with our systems, we partner with what we call a CRISPR-associated system, or a CAS enzyme. Um, in particular, the one I was using was called CAS9, and is the most commonly used one. Um, it originates from the bacteria called Streptococcus 
pyogenes. And how it originated um, and was found in nature is that it's actually an adaptive immune system. So what it does in nature is basically this big Cas9 enzyme comes in and recognises uh, foreign DNA that's inside our bacteria. So a bacteriophage will come along, um, insert its DNA, and this Cas9 enzyme will bind to it and basically chop it up. And you'll see on the next slide why that makes sure that that DNA doesn't work. But the really cool thing about our bacteria parasite is that it has this thing called a single guide RNA, which allows it to recognise the foreign DNA. So through that, if we can take that out of our bacteria and put it into something like a malaria parasite, we can manipulate it and use it for something like we're going to do here and discover how the genes work. So once it's bound to the DNA and we've had our big Cas9 enzyme come in and make that cut in the DNA, we've got two options. We can either have our nasty older sibling come along um, and we have something occur which is called non-homologous end joining. So basically your nasty older sister, or your nasty older sibling doesn't really give you much help. <laughs> they come along and they give you nothing and you basically just have to mash the two bits together and that doesn't end well. So this is what happens in nature and if you just mash it together, your DNA doesn't work anymore. Or in terms of a gene, it means your gene doesn't be expressed anymore. Or if you have a helpful parent, sometimes they'll come along and you know, your mum, she's pretty generous, but she might not know the most about Lego. So she'll give you, you know, something that'll fit in there, but it's got this weird looking blue brick. So with us, what we're gonna do is take our weird looking blue brick and we're gonna make that our green fluorescent protein so we can get glow in the dark parasites. But essentially you could put anything in here. It could be any gene you want and insert that into your um, DNA. So the outcome of doing this is basically we get a construct that looks like this, which is basically a big piece of DNA. What we can do is then insert this big piece of DNA into our malaria parasite. If that is then expressed, bingo, we get these awesome looking things down here, which are red blood cells filled with all our beautifully glow-in-the-dark um, green fluorescent protein malaria parasites. The long-term impacts of this, basically, firstly, we want to show that we can make them glow-in-the-dark because that means it works. If we can get it in there and it glows in the dark, it works. What we want to do second of all is go back and we can, we can do our other systems, how we can just chop it and make our gene not work and we can see how that reacts or we can put a new gene in there and see how that works. So that's all from me. Um, thank you very much for listening. I just want to acknowledge um, my supervisors, um, Dr. Gaydon Bergio and Laura Jensen who helped me out in the lab and if you have any more questions I'll be happy to talk to you afterwards. The next cab off the rank is, a, amazingly, a first-year science PhD student, Aidan Hines. His uh, supervisor is amazingly named John Howard. That's not the Prime Minister, that's not the actor, that's the world-class physicist. Okay. So, free, clean, virtually limitless energy. That's the promise that nuclear fusion holds. Now, you've all heard of the atom bomb, which works by splitting a big, unstable atom uranium, and it splits into two and releases a lot of energy. Nuclear fusion is the exact opposite. We get two smaller atoms, say hydrogen, and I squish them together until they get close enough and make a helium, including a lot of energy that comes out in the same time, thanks to Einstein's E equals mc squared, since we can convert matter into energy. And this is the process that happens in all the stars in the universe, including our own sun. And so we've known about this process for quite a long time, almost 100 years. And scientists for the past 50 years have been trying to make this, uh, have been trying to use fusion as a power source, uh, but it's not really easy because you need to make a star on Earth, which is sort of the first problem. So how do you make a star on Earth? Well, we don't exactly have the gravity of the sun, which is how the sun sort of compresses hydrogen close enough. We're going to use something else. We use magnets. And in particular, we use a donut-shaped magnetic bottle, 
So we have a donut-shaped star. And so you have this uh, donut-shaped reactor, uh, tokamak. But this has its own problems associated with it, in particular turbulence. And now, you've all experienced turbulence on airplanes, probably. It's the same kind of thing inside a plasma. And this makes you lose a lot of energy inside the reaction, which makes it very difficult to use as an actual power source. And so we want, what we want to do is make really high-precision measurements of what's going on inside the plasma to understand what influences turbulence, what makes it happen. And understanding that allows us to design better reactors for the future and make them more efficient so we can actually generate power from nuclear fusion. But this is the problem, right? I mean, fusion or plasma is so hot, 200 million degrees. These are actually hotter than the sun. And so they'll melt anything they touch. Can't exactly stick a probe in to see how hot it is. So what do you do? Take images instead. And so my supervisor, Professor John Howard, and he does get a lot of jokes about that, he, uh, he developed this diagnostic imaging equipment that can, just by looking at the light that the plasma gives off, tell you how hot the plasma is. And this works with relatively simple physics, actually. So you've all heard of the Doppler effect, probably, or at least you've heard a car go by and heard the sound go, mm. so that's frequency shifting of the sound because the car is moving. And it turns out that light does exactly the same thing. And so particles inside the plasma are quite hot. They're moving quite fast, and they're also giving off light. But this light is shifted in frequency or wavelength because they're moving. And the faster the particles are, that is, the hotter they are, the more shift you'll see in this light. And so what we do is we look at spectral lines, which are actually measures of intensity, that is, how much light we see at different frequencies. And so you have this curve here. And this curve is wider the hotter the plasma is. So all we need to do is get the spectral line, look at the width of the spectral line, and you'll know how hot the plasma is. And so my project was extending upon this piece of equipment by adding on another set of measurements that we can get uh, from the same set of data that we actually acquire from these images by understanding another phenomenon, the Stark effect. And this allows us to get electron density from the plasma, another really important parameter. And so just starting off, I mean, atoms have these quantum energy levels, which you might have heard about. The, and a really easy way to think about it is atoms as a hotel with different floors. And electrons live on different floors. And the higher up they are, the more energy they have. And they can take an elevator down from a higher floor to a lower floor. And they give off a particular photon of light from that energy they lose as they go down this elevator. And this light comes off at a particular frequency. And so what we do when we look at this light from the plasma is we look at a very particular transition from, say, the fifth floor to the second floor. Uh, but what happens is you have these atoms inside the plasma. And there's all these electrons whizzing around. So when they look out, they see all these electrons, but it's actually an electric field to them. And this electric field perturbs these floors. They split them up. And so instead of just going from the fifth floor to the second floor, you go from the fifth to the second and a half, or the three and a half, or the three and three quarters. You've got all these other transitions, which means you've got all these other frequencies related to the same thing that you're looking at, which again means that that spectral line you're looking at is broader. And so my project was using this phenomenon to look at hydrogen plasma in MAGPI, the linear plasma machine we have here at ANU, and be able to acquire both temperature and electron density at the same time from the same set of measurements. And so we ran a number of experiments using this machine. And we have a camera on top that takes a sort of top-down image. And it feeds it into an optical fiber, and it goes into some optics. Uh, but I mean, now the question is, we got this light. But how do you get the spectral line out? This is a little bit more complicated. And we do something called coherence imaging, which is a type of interferometry. And interferometry, of this kind at least, 
is really just getting light to interfere with itself. And what this does essentially is give you this signal, an interferogram. And what we're looking at in this graph is actually the slope of that interferogram. The sharper that drops off, the wider your spectral line is. And so you can relate that very, very rigorously in, with mathematics. Uh, it's kind of complicated, but we can do it. And you get this other curve, uh, brightness profile, which is not the spectral line, it's a little bit different. And now this gets a little bit more complicated, and this was really the meat of my project. So you take your data, you take some images, you get data, and you get this line, a brightness profile. The problem is, this is, this is a two-dimensional set of data describing a three-dimensional object. And each point on that line corresponds to a spectral line for everything below it. And so you have the sum of all these, all these brightnesses, essentially, from atoms in a particular line going to a single point. And you're looking at a single point and asking, so what's all the atoms doing behind there? This is a tomographic problem. And it's actually what x-rays and CAT scans do all the time. So we actually know how to deal with this. All we have to do is take about four sets of measurements and play around with the maths and basically solved for two unknowns and all that sort of thing. But you can do it. Uh, and I ran a number of simulations showing that you can actually do this theoretically. And with the experiments and the data that we're, we got, uh, it seems to be very promising that we can actually get electron density and temperature at the same time with the same set of measurements. And so you can see here um, with, the, with the results from the project that we actually get back those, those measurements very, very accurately, which is really awesome. This kind of technology is unseen in, in plasma physics. Just, you're looking at the light and getting two sets of really useful data out. And so this particular bit of technology will be extremely useful for fusion reactors around the world. In fact, it already is being used now, uh, thanks to being deployed by my supervisor at several reactors. Um, but in particular, there's one in mind that we're really excited about, and that's the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor over in the south of France, which is currently being built. And the cool thing about this one is it's going to be 20 stories tall, and it'll be the first fusion reactor, we hope, that will actually generate more power out than we put in. So you'll put in one megawatt of energy, and it'll output 10 megawatts, thanks to nuclear fusion. And so this diagnostic equipment, we can just put it onto this bottled donut star, and tell you how hot and how dense it is, and therefore understand turbulence and make it a whole lot more efficient for energy of the future. Thank you. The next talk we have is uh, Todd Harris, equally intimidating in his own, own way, <laughs> uh, with his beautifully modulated voice. He's going to, his, his supervisor was Eddie Sevick. Eddie Sevick. And he's going to talk on chemical key rings. So hi, I'm Todd Harris, as you may have just heard. Third year PhD student, I'm here to talk to you today about chemical key rings, which are a new family of molecule that uh, I came up with and studied uh, earlier this year. So before I get into the details of that, I'm going to talk about a few other types of molecules so you can actually build an understanding. So the first one are called rotaxanes, okay? And there, you see on the left there, it's a general structure of a rotaxane. So you can see it's just a, a rod, and onto it, you thread a ring. And then you cap the rod at the ends to stop the ring from falling off. And on the right, you can see that um, in sort of a molecular picture. So each of the vertices on that diagram represents an atom. And you can, that gives you an idea of the scale of these things. So what's so exciting about rotaxanes? They're quite new. Um, what's so exciting about them is uh, the fact that that ring has so much freedom of motion. It's, it's not bonded to the, the dumbbell-shaped object, but it is bound to it. And that freedom of motion in a molecule is quite exciting, and it gives it a lot of interesting applications. Um, I think the most exciting of which are these things called switch rotaxanes, which you can see here 
labeled A, that's a, the same kind of structure, but we've attached a long rod to the ring. And you can see there in red and green, there are two stations on the, on the dumbbell-shaped object. And the, the ring wants to sit at one of these two stations. And in fact, you can decide which one of these stations it's sitting at um, by designing it correctly and just using light. So you can essentially, um, if you look at B there, you can shine a flashlight on one of these things. And if you kind of squint your eyes a little bit, it's basically just a long, skinny molecule and you can make it longer. And you can do that to a whole solution of them. And that's a, it's really quite cool. And it, that, that technology is actually used in, in some applications. I don't know if, if you guys have ever seen those windows that automatically tint at the flick of a switch. It's quite interesting. So another family of molecules that are quite important are catenanes, which are kind of similar. They're just interlocked rings. So again, bound, but not bonded to. So a lot of freedom of motion there. And here's a few different types of catenanes, how you can arrange them. The ones of interest to us are E there. They're called radial catenanes. And you can see it consists of one main ring, and then onto it a few minor rings are bonded. So what my bright idea was, was to combine these two concepts, a switch rotaxane and a radi radial catenane. And I came up with these things, which I call key rings. Um, you can see here, it's quite similar to a radial catenane. But instead of rings, I put these keys on. And uh, what that is, it's just a minor ring. And that long rod is a switch rotaxane, so that's length adjustable. You can, on command, you can change that length, make it longer or shorter. Um, and then at the end of that is a repulsive charge. And that repulsive charge makes these things arrange themselves in all sorts of interesting ways. And that's the bulk of my project, was studying how they arrange themselves. And um, yeah, I'm just going to show you a little bit of that. Um, so here we have a four key ring. And this is a common feature for all key rings. When the keys are sufficiently short relative to the size of the ring, um, they will lie in the plane of the ring. So you get that flat molecule you see up the top there. Um, but if you make them longer with your um, beam of light or whatever you choose to use, um, in the case of four key rings, you see they actually jump out of the plane in this, what I call an even split conformer, where you get half of the keys go up and half of the keys go down. Um, this even split conformer is actually common to all even numbered key rings. So you can see four key ring, six key ring, and eight key ring, they all are kind of similar in nature. They're highly symmetrical when the keys are sufficiently long. Um, half the keys jump out of the plane, uh, jump above the plane, and half the keys go below. Um, so that's, that's quite pretty, and that's nice and highly symmetrical. What's, what's less pretty are the odd numbered key rings. You can see here I've got five, seven, and nine key rings. And the common feature to all these conformers, as you can see, is that one key stays in the plane of the main ring, and the others sort of jumble themselves about. Um, and you can see there, they've got quite low symmetry compared to what we saw with the even-numbered things. Now what's really interesting is nine key rings. Um, they start out flat when the keys are short. You make them a bit longer, they turn into that. But if you make them longer still, um, you get this conformer, which is highly symmetrical. And the ability to change the symmetry from the, the low symmetry we see here to the high symmetry we see here is uh, a, quite an exciting potential application for more sort of smart fluids and things, um, similar to switch rotaxanes, but with arguably more potential. The problem with this conformer is that you can see it's not technically possible because there are two keys overlapping the two that come out of the planes. There's actually six of them. They're overlapping. So that's not physically possible. You obviously can't have that. So you know, it's an area for further study. It'll be interesting to see how they behave in a more accurate and detailed model. And uh, lastly, I'm just going to talk about 10 key rings, which are fascinating. 
So when the keys are really short, they're flat, you make them a bit longer, they go to that even split complement, five up, five down. You make the keys really long, and they go to this complement, which is quite bizarre. You've got two keys in the plane of the main ring, and then the others are doing some stuff. And for those of you who are interested, um, in the limit of infinitely long keys, um, this, this structure goes to a bicapped square anti-prismatic geometry, which I just love saying. <laughs> um, so some concluding remarks. Um, yeah, these are potentially, they've got a lot of applications possibly uh, as molecular machine parts. Um, if you guys have heard about molecular machines, uh, it's in the name. They're machines on a molecular scale. Also exciting is on-demand changes in symmetry, as I've mentioned. That's uh, quite, quite new, quite exciting, some potential applications there. Um, so this work is, is part of the paper I've been writing this year, um, as well as a whole lot of boring maths, which I've spared you from. And that's going to be published in the coming weeks. So yeah, thank you for listening. So our next, uh, next speaker, we've had a, had a few science things. So we're going to have a bit of a change of pace now to um, the Asia-Pacific, in fact, and, and some social sciences with Oliver Friedman talking about digital disruption in the academy. So good evening. It is going to be a bit of a change of pace, that's for sure. Um, my name's Oliver Friedman, and as of today, I'm a second-year PHP Asia and the Pacific Studies student um, who was transferred through four different programs, two different universities, hundreds of different career paths, and almost weekly engages in some kind of existential practice where I question my role in this speck of dust we call Earth. Um, <laughs> but today my speech isn't necessarily going to focus on Asian studies or my research specifically. Um, I want to spend some time sharing a project that I've been working on and developing as a response to some of the issues I've identified in academia. Issues that stem from the clash between digital disruption and the call for academics to have impact. Issues that place business before education, knowledge before learning, and prestige over engagement. So at a seminar earlier this year entitled The Conservative Roots of Radicalism, Making Yesterday's Universities Relevant Today, I questioned Matthew Davies, a scholar here at the ANU, about the academic impact of education. And he said the following. If we discuss impact without questioning the role of universities as providers of critical, informed, self-aware and self-doubting citizens, we are just going to allow the replication of a fate where people think that they are right about everything. And then I have failed ontologically in what it means to be an academic. What I think Matthew has identified here is the defining role of academics, to provide the world and its people with to provide the world of its people with information that makes us doubt, think, engage, and debate from a position of intellectual strength. My belief right now is the academy does not do a good enough job at this, and here's why. We live in a world that has been digitally disrupted. For the young person, this means that most of the, their interaction and engagement with the world happens through online social platforms. Within a few years, they will be able to learn the majority of the content that a university offers online for free. Compound this with the fact that their passions have never been nurtured at high school, and what you get is a group of young people who are ill-informed about educational possibilities, are engaging with diluted information sources online, lack passion, and will soon have university alternatives. For the academic, impact is the word of the day. Academics must, as part of their social contract, have either policy or educative impact. But most of what they are incentivized to do as academics doesn't facilitate this. They are forced to produce peer-reviewed articles that are on average read seven times. These articles are locked behind paywalls and communicated with intellectual jargon that most people can't understand. To my mind, knowledge generation is definitely important, but knowledge generation without impact 
I'm not convinced it means anything. In a world where specialised journalism is dying, it's the academics' opinions that we should be hearing from. To change our universities, I think it requires two things. We need to encourage academic commentary to be more public focused, and we need to give educational control back to the students. So my solution is Maven. It is a platform that acknowledges the digital trend towards edgy and personality-based content, the likes we see on Vice and other content-driven platforms. It also acknowledges that marketing strategies along, uh, amongst universities are ancient and that a new model of student recruitment needs to be developed that allows young people to make informed and impassioned decisions regarding their learning. Maven involves an entire social platform that I hope will develop with time. Events that focus on youth culture, education, Q&As and storytelling, mentoring sessions which focus on one-to-one -one student teacher engagement, workshops in university settings, takeovers where we run Raven-based assessment in university for, for potential publication, giving students tangible results for their studies that go well beyond a simple mark. And this semester I piloted this idea in a, in a first year Asian studies course here at the ANU. The assessment I designed was blog-based blog and allows students to engage with their passions and produce a piece that they were genuinely proud of, that they would share on their Facebook page. And over the coming weeks, students from this course will have their, their pieces legitimately published, a reward, a reward that goes far beyond the grades. All of this creates a community around Maven, but my most immediate project is a blog which is going to become the locus for the rest of these activities. The blog aims to explore youth passion and redefine the educational experience. Each of the content types you see behind me have been designed to deconstruct the student-teacher relationship, to encourage passionate engagement with academia, and to present academic as, academics as personalities. The point here is that we need an edgy, independent, youth-driven content platform that aims to shift the current attitu attitude towards tertiary education, because at the moment that voice does not exist. Through this focus on creativity, Maven aims to put emotion back into learning and personality into academia. It's guerrilla learning and it's young people taking control, of, taking control of their education. The PHB is a rare example of what I believe education should look like. But making mentoring of this kind scalable is very, very difficult. Bringing personality and passion back into learning will hopefully help this pro process. Tonight I've just shared with you a few insights in what has been a very complicated and creative process developing Maven and hopefully it provides you with some food for thought, especially if you're considering a career in academia. It is still developing and certainly isn't going to be an overnight success, but I believe it is moving in the right direction. The new cohort of researchers has both an opportunity and an obligation to change our academic system. To change academic practices, the push needs to come from the youth, because unless the attitudes towards universities are challenged, the bureaucratic frameworks won't shift, and our ability to produce critical, informed, self-aware and self-doubting citizens will continue to be crippled. Thank you. Just uh, we're at the radical centre of, of the presentations tonight and, um, and our next uh, presenter is Rosalind Moran is, who is going to a uh, second year PhD or third year? Third year PhD student I should know, part of the arts program. And she's talking about writing wrongs, uh, women and the glass ceiling. And she did this research as part of the ACT Writers Festival and as Brian pointed out, or, or the Vice Chancellor I should say, um, he, he, uh, he's, uh, the ACT Writers Festival is going on at the moment as we speak, so that's uh, singularly appropriate. Thank you. What do you think of when you hear the words women's fiction? Swirly titles on pink book covers, feet or a pair of shoes dangling in the sky, small golden-haired children running for no apparent reason towards the ocean.
You've all seen the covers, and if you're anything like me, you've probably avoided them, or at least avoided being seen with them. There's a shame associated with women's fiction, and that shame raises questions. Why do many of us, especially men, recoil from books which are marketed towards women? Why do literature students so often lie about which book they last read? And why does all of this matter? Let's start with women's fiction. It's commonly defined as books written by women, about women, for women. I understand why people might focus on an author being female. Gender impacts an author's life and subsequently their writing. Plus, highlighting female authors can help revive interest in overlooked writers and hopefully help mend the gender imbalance in literature. But my pet peeve, or one of them, is the insinuation that books written by women, about women, must therefore be for women. Women's fiction gets its own segregated section amongst book categories. Women's writing is still fiction by women, but it's considered literary, so it's different. Yet literature by women is still strangely categorized as women's writing rather than just literature. So why are these even separate categories? To begin with, the main difference between women's fiction and women's writing is that the first is marketed at women and the second is considered literary. This in itself is problematic for it implies a juxtaposition that that which is marketed at women cannot be literary. And why isn't women's fiction considered literary? Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Fifty Shades of My God, this book is terrible as literature, but I do think we should question our aversion to women's fiction. Women's fiction tells stories about mothers, children, families, female sexualities and female struggles. What's so shameful about that? What's more, statistics on literary prize winners show that the more a book deals with traditionally feminine themes, the more likely it is to be labelled as women's fiction, not literature, and the more likely it is to miss out on literary prizes. This problem is only compounded when both protagonist and author are female. This leads to books like The Help being labelled as women's fiction, and it explores the oppression of African-American maids in the Mississippi. Historical novels by men written about women, meanwhile, like Brooklyn, about an Irish immigrant to America, can't be disparagingly categorized as women's fiction because the author is male. So such books of equal literary merit are subsequently categorized as historical fiction or cultural island. I don't believe that an author's gender, whatever it may be, should lead to their work being disparaged. Maybe Brooklyn and its rather predictable love triangle really did deserve being long-listed for the coincidentally named Man Booker Prize. <laughs> yet, the ease with which su yet the ease with which such books listed become listed as literature does imply that books about women by men are perceived more highly than similar books by women. Furthermore, even if women's fiction is considered good enough, whatever that means, to be women's writing, there's still a glass ceiling between women's writing and literature. Even well-written books get excluded from the literature club if they're too feminine. Consider books by women deemed literature, such as Sadie Smith's. They often give at least part of their primary focus to men's stories and perspectives. Again, there's nothing wrong with that in itself, but it is problematic when a book has to focus on traditionally masculine themes and stories in order to be fully recognized. What's more, when books by women do make it into the literary category, the insinuation is that they are too good for labels which include the word women and must therefore be elevated to a separate genre. 
These books are assimilated into the boys club and even the covers get masculine makeovers as seen here. Non-feminine pen names can also entail greater publishing success. Uh, J.K. Rowling, for example, was asked by her publishers to write under J.K. because they feared that no boy would read a book written by Joanne Kathleen. Meanwhile, books and authors continuing to exist under labels, under labels which include the word women, continue to be belittled, and not least because some of the most recognized works by women are now presented as playing for another team. In this way, covers and categories both reflect and perpetuate prejudices. Essentially, hiding femininity is a great way of being taken seriously in the literature world. And until we train ourselves, men and women alike, to value the stories of women, by women, as much as we value those relating to men, our understanding of fiction will remain sexist and limiting. Boys aren't encouraged to read women's fiction because it's considered a second-rate, frilly, pastel subcategory of real fiction. Same as how women have historically been viewed as the second gender, a deviation from the traditional norm of men. And in this sense, men and women both suffer because men are led to learn less about 50% of the population and then have to interact with them for the rest of their lives. And women go through life alongside people who've been conditioned to see them as a mystical and foreign experience wearing a dress. So my challenge to you is to stand up to that biased marketing and to go and read a book about someone whose story is typically considered a subcategory, whether they be a woman, part of an ethnic minority, religious minority, sexual minority. Take the chance to walk in another person's shoes and question the literary prejudices you've been fed ever since you could read. There are so many stories out there. Why not try another flavor? Thank you. Our next presenter is uh, another PhD student, uh, Kay Song, is second year science and um, is poking at vibrations in crystals, not Pokemon. Crystals. We normally think of them as fixed solids, static and unchanging. However, this is the furthest thing from the truth. Most crystals are made up of lattices of atoms, that is, they're arranged like a giant 3D grid and each atom is constantly moving. This is because they possess something called thermal energy, or heat. And we can describe these vibrations using a quantum particle called a phonon, which is just a little packet of vibrational energy. They're what is known as a quasi-particle, which means they're not real in the sense that they have a tangible volume or a location, but rather they're a convenient lie made up by physicists because we find it much easier to describe the movement of these atoms if we imagine that their motion is caused by collisions with these invisible phonons. They have very definite levels of energy as well as directions of travel depending on the geometry of your crystal lattice. And because they're packets of energy, they're spontaneously created or destroyed inside your lattice when it gains or loses vibrations. And because they're a quantum phenomenon, like all other things, they're both waves and particles. Cool. So why do we care about these phonons? They're not even real. Well, it turns out they're responsible for conducting heat through our solid. So a good understanding of them could help us to describe things in um, condensed matter physics, such as superconductors. And it also helps us design solid state devices, such as computer chips, mobile phones, as well as solar cells. And in the age where we try to make everything smaller and smaller, a good understanding of heat can help us overcome the problem of overheating when you're trying to make smaller devices. 
And soon enough, you'll be playing Angry Birds off an iPhone the size of your thumbnail. Not that it's good for your eyes. So what do we measure in our experiment? Well, we looked at the phonon energy levels inside crystals of quartz. And we chose quartz because it's a common material used as a sample holder inside our phonon experiments. And we get an awful lot of data coming off them. And you don't want data coming off your sample holder because that often masks what you're trying to see inside your sample. So a good solution is you look at what data is coming off your sample holder, you subtract what you actually sub subtract that from what you see in the detectors, and then you isolate the actual data coming off your sample, which is what we're doing. So we looked at phonons using these particles called neutrons, which are found inside your nucleus. And neutrons are great because they carry no charge, and so they won't be repelled by the electrons inside your lattice when they get too close, and they can effectively penetrate through the lattice or bounce off other things based on literally physically hitting them. So we generated these neutrons using the nuclear reactor up at ANSO, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation in Sydney, and they have the only nuclear reactor in Australia. So the idea behind the technique we used is called inelastic neutron scattering, and what happens is that we throw neutrons of a known energy at our sample, and if it hits it at just the right angle or the right energy, then it'll vibrate the lattice up a little bit. And if you remember, since phonons are packets of vibration, if you vibrate the lattice, then you generate more phonons. Or vice versa, if you absorb it a, a little bit of this vibration, then you take away some phonons. Either way, the neutron leaves the lattice with more energy than it came in. And by looking at this energy exchange, we can deduce the phonons that were generated or taken away from our sample. So, gave it away. Um, <laughs> this is what we actually measured. Now, along the x-axis, you have the uh, phonon energy levels. And note that the zero is actually on your right-hand side, so you've got to flip how you're looking at it. Um, and along the y-axis, you have the relative number of phonons in each energy level. And the purple line behind it is a model that we generated using a quantum supercomputer. And the red and blue lines are what we actually measured. Note that the red line is higher than the blue line. This means what we were looking at were actually phonons because the red line was measured at a higher temperature than the blue line. So your lattice had more vibrations and hence more phonons because phonons equals vibrations. Now, it doesn't take an Einstein to see that our data didn't quite match up with the model, especially up at the higher energy levels. Now, why is that? And as I gave away earlier, the phonons tricked us. <coughs> What we didn't quite consider was that phonons belong to a class of particles called bosons. And this means that they all like to fall into the lowest energy state possible. If they don't have enough of a kick to bump them up here, they won't be found there. They're lazy. They like to be down here with their friends who wouldn't like to lie on the couch. So hypothetically, if we do want to see these experimentally, we would have to heat the lattice up a lot, which could melt it. Or we could use really, really energetic neutrons but neither of them are really feasible, nor is that what we really want to see under these normal conditions, which is what most experiments are conducted under. So this data is really useful because it allows us to calibrate our instruments here in Australia with the ones all over the world, with our friends in Germany, Japan, France, the US, and that sets a common benchmark off of which we can compare our phonon data with the ones that they're getting. And that all goes into developing the next iPhone, MacBook, solar cells, all for you. So the next time your laptop overheats from all that intense studying you're doing, don't forget the hard work of the phonons inside. Thank you.
the next speaker is a, a more uh, science PhD student, Benjamin Thompson, who's going to be talking about chemical weavings and coloured nets and get ready for some pretty impressive graphics. Okay, here comes. So in my project, I investigated a relatively new class of materials known as metal organic frameworks, or MLFs. So these consist of a metal lattice held together by a variety of 3D nets, which interweave with one another to form several holes and pores. And these holes and pores give these structures some very useful applications. The holes can act as a molecular sieve, blocking bulky um, molecules like proteins, but allowing smaller ones through, whereas the pores act as a place for gases to be stored. Um, and both of these applications lend themselves to industry as well as medicine. So although we can make these things fairly easily, many questions about them remain. Such, even, even a question as simple as, what are the possible structures these things can have? And this was my main research question. To classify the different ways these 3D nets can interweave with one another. This is a fairly complicated question though. So my first approach was to simplify the problem. That is, to represent the different ways these nets interweave with one another in a simpler way. So how could we go about this? Let's consider two interwoven hexagonal nets. How can we go about describing how these, internet, how these nets are interwoven in a simpler fashion? Well, if we just consider the black net, in this case here, and mark on it all the points where the white net crosses over or under it, under it we obtain a diagram which we can use to construct the original weaving. But now if we colour the edges of this, we then obtain a pattern which contains all of the information about the original crossing. Although in this case here, the black edges are redundant, so we can actually shrink them just to obtain a pattern of squares. And so to any hexagonal weaving, we can associate a pattern of squares that captures all of the information about these weavings. And you can extend this, it's a bit more complicated, but you can extend this same idea to MOFs. So to every MOF structure, we can associate a, pattern of a certain pattern. But every step in the process I described is actually reversible. So to any pattern, you can associate a corresponding weaving of three-dimensional nets. And using this, we can classify MOFs. That is, by finding all of the possible patterns, we can find all of the possible three-dimensional structures. So how do we go about classifying all of these coloured nets? Well, we can borrow a branch of mathematics known as Delaney dress tiling theory to do this. And we can actually use a notation in this John Conway called Conway Cranks to do this. Now, these are sort of fairly abstract. So by doing this, we're moving from the abstract world of uh, patterns to an even more abstract world of graphs. But, uh, and and the, the process is too complicated for me to describe here. But the point is there is a correspondence between the two. And so by doing this, we can basically classify all of these MOFs by classifying cranks. So now we can ask the question, how do we classify these cranks? Well, we can use, we can use mathematics as well as the computer to help us. And much of my project involved using a computer program, writing a computer program, I should say, to figure out all of the possible uh, allowed cranks. So let's see what my program does. So let's say we give the computer triangles. The computer then says there are four cranks. So these correspond to four possible patterns. Well, what do these look like? So we can here see here some are fairly simple, um, and some, some of the patterns obtained are uh, one seen in nature, such as the hexagonal one. That's like honeycomb. But there's actually no reason why we need to work with patterns that we can draw on a piece of paper. We can actually consider patterns which exist in different spaces, such as a square pattern where at every corner six squares meet instead of the usual four. Uh, this actually, this shape itself lives in the hyperbolic plane. 
Um, and when we put that into the computer, we get seven different cracks, which correspond to seven different patterns. And this is the simplest of them. We can go a step further now and say, well, what's the actual 3D structure that this uh, weaving corresponds to? Um, and this is the structure here. And it's actually, it's actually a very well-known um, structure in material science um, and comes, turns up all over the place. But it's best appreciated from, uh, from several angles. And so by using mathematics, we can classify MOFs and other important three-dimensional nets in science by studying and classifying patterns. Thank you. Our next speaker is Jesse Wu, the third-year student from the PHB Arts program on gifted underachievement and causes, and she uh, did this work with the Department of Education. So we, we work with not only uh, world-class scientists, but we also engage with the real world out there. The literature on gifted and talented education is vast and endlessly interesting. But for my research I did for the Department of Education, my attention was drawn time and time again to one phenomenon. Large numbers of gifted and talented students are systematically failing to achieve at the level of which they are capable. But despite being widely observed, this phenomenon is not well understood. Research in this area has focused on describing the symptoms of underachievement instead of investigating its underlying causes. My research seeks to fill this gap in the literature. I interviewed three teachers about the gifted and talented teach programs at their schools, including a top-performing single-sex school, a co-educational religious school, and a co-educational Steiner school. I have integrated the qualitative evidence collected in these interviews with evidence collected from a review of the literature. But first, to define gifted underachievement. For me, a gifted underachiever is a student for whom there is a significant discrepancy between their academic potential and their academic performance. In the schools I studied, underachievers are identified by their classroom teachers. Teachers are instructed to look for students who seem capable but are disconnected from their learning. These students may offhandedly make perceptive comments, have an out there or esoteric sense of humour, or occasionally produce work of exceptional quality but do not consistently apply their intelligence to their learning. Um. So why do the gifted underachieve? This is an immense question and we must begin by interrogating its assumptions because embedded within this question is an assumption that those who are gifted, who have natural aptitudes, ought to achieve academically regardless of whether necessary provisions have been made to support their learning. I will deconstruct this assumption and argue that the process of talent development is only possible when certain intrapersonal and environmental catalysts are present in a child's education. So I'll mention three interventions. In the first, students were guided through a creative project by their teacher. They were cast in the role of investigators and inquirers allowed to choose a topic that interested them and create knowledge in, a, in their preferred style of learning. Some students designed solar cars while others wrote a choose-your-own-adventure novel. Teachers worked with students to determine the problem to be investigated and to set up a management plan. They also provided resources and guidance as needed and helped students to share their completed investigation with interested audiences. 
In the second intervention, students participated in challenging tasks which required them to set up a management um, which required lateral thinking in an environment full of other capable peers. These activities were more conceptually challenging than classroom work and often combined knowledge from a variety of disciplines. For example, a challenge in the 2015 Da Vinci Decathlon was to compose an original poem and an integrated work of art that represented the places that bore significance to the life of a famous individual. Lastly, I looked at some classroom strategies teachers used to support underachievers. At CGGS, teachers set clear expectations for underperforming students and explicitly praised them when they met those expectations. Importantly, teachers expressly praised the effort exerted by students rather than the result achieved. In my report, I evaluated these interventions in terms of how they interact with three underlying causes of underachievement, and I'll talk about two of these. One of these is motivation, an important catalyst for talent development. It is known to sustain students through boredom, obstacles, and failure. It is difficult to motivate a student extrinsically, but I suggest interventions that are successful are able to simulate a state of being motivated, and this could catalyze the process of talent de development. So the state of being motivated is referred to as optimal motivation. This is an experience where students become absorbed in a task at hand. They are clearly focused and totally involved. Time seems to fly by and their exertions seem effortless. So I found that students are most likely to experience optimal motivation both when their interests are aroused, but other consistently identified elements include clear goals, immediate feedback, a challenging activity which requires the application of skills, concentration on the task at hand, and a sense of control over actions. So the type three enrichment contained many of these elements, combining the opportunity to pursue an area of interest with access to supervisors who could provide them with scaffolding techniques, help them to master methods used by practicing professionals and give them feedback on their process. So, this analysis nuances the commonplace assumption that gifted students will be motivated if they are working on something that interests them. I argue that the other elements of optimal motivation are equally important for talent development. So in order to induce the state of optimal motivation, educators should use scaffolding techniques to guide the student. To they should provide constant feedback and ensure the student feels like they have a sense of control over the direction of the project. Secondly, low self-esteem. Low self-esteem can be an underlying cause of underachievement. Having high self-esteem allows the student to disassociate failing at an individual task from being a failure, therefore giving them the confidence to experiment and to attempt tasks which challenge them, processes which are especially important in the learning of maths and the sciences. I argue the form of praise employed by teachers at CGGS is a counterpoint to the excessive praise that adults sometimes heap on gifted children in a way that is productive. 
Many children interpret excessive praise as an expectation to be perfect, and they feel demoralized when they cannot live up to those expectations. Instead, praising students for meeting realistic expectations affirms their achievements, eases their anxiety, and relieves the pressure to live up to impossible and often unattainable standards that they tend to impose upon themselves. Moreover, this praise improves the, academic, uh, the student's academic self-concept. Students who evaluate their performance against external metrics, who compare their performance to that of their peers and their siblings and to their past experience um, and to their goals, feel a sense of low, uh, gain low self-esteem when they fail to meet up to those comparisons. Praising specific achievements help the students to understand success in terms of meeting specific goals. And having clear expectations for students can not only help those who are anxious about their performance, it can help underachieving students construct a positive image of themselves and their ability where previously they had lost faith in, in, in those abilities. So in conclusion, this report began by asking why the gifted underachieve. However, it concludes by saying that that question is misguided in the first place because it assumes that giftedness and achievement are mutually interchangeable. Instead, I have presented evidence to show that the development of gifts into talents is an ongoing process which must be catalyzed by an education. Thank you. Now, listen, uh, the last presentation before we adjourn out for Nibley's outside, um, and uh, the next speaker is uh, Harry Dalton, a second year uh, PhD student in arts, and bringing back to humanities with Walt Whitman, Civil War. A recurring narrative device in Peter Weir's 1989 film Dead Poets Society is the use of war poetry by one of America's best known literary figures, Walt Whitman. The poem I'm referring to is, of course, O Captain, My Captain, a stirring and sombre elegy to President Abraham Lincoln, who was tragically assassinated at the conclusion of the American Civil War. The film, starring Robin Williams, revolves around a story of adolescent self-discovery. The central character is an English teacher who encourages his students to get in touch with their passions, emotions and desires, fostering their creative and literary tendencies. This then is the context in which Whitman's poem is used. Its emotionally rich themes of grief, anguish, reverence, and despair when faced with a life needlessly destroyed, echoing the humanistic, soul-searching, and tragic aspects of the film's story. Someone who has seen the film, and even someone who is familiar with Whitman's pre-war poetry from his famed Leaves of Grass anthology, learning of the bloodthirstiness, militarism, an intense enthusiasm for death and destruction the poet displayed in his early war poetry would come as something of a shock. Last semester, I carried out a research project into Walt Whitman's war poetry. I'd been interested in Whitman for some time. I saw that the English department was running a course on 19th century US literature, featuring him as one of the principal authors. So I organized to do an advanced studies course focusing on Whitman. I said to my supervisor that I was interested in American history, in particular the American Civil War. I knew that Whitman wrote poetry during the war and following it. After all, I'd seen Dead Poet Society. And she suggested I look at Whitman's poetry in the context of the Civil War. So I had a research topic. The next step was to read some of his war poetry. I picked up his Civil War anthology and started from the beginning. 
And what I found shocked me, because he was extremely excited about the war. He was enthusiastic and eager about the prospect of Americans killing each other. He was intensely militaristic, joyously describing the cannons and soldiers' parades. He was, in fact, jingoistic. He wanted his side to go to war, and he wanted his side to beat the Confederacy and punish it for starting the war. This seemed very at odds with the Whitman I was familiar with. The Whitman poetry I knew celebrated love, nature, and humanity, not guns, soldiers, and killing. But I could see his poetry appeared to change over the course of the war, modulating gradually to the more sombre and melancholy tone of, O oh, Captain, My Captain. I wanted to find out how his poetry changed and compare the style, themes, and tone he assumed during the war with his earlier work and see how different it really was and whether there were any similarities. So what did I find out? Basically, I saw the way Whitman processed the war through his poetry was in fact quite similar to the style and tone of his earlier work. Whitman's poetry is full of contradictions. The fact he maintained this aspect of his work is evidence of a continuation of style. His poetry and the worldview he expounds through it is also very accommodating of difference and opposition. And this leads to a peculiar type of poetry and indeed a peculiar way of appraising a civil war. Often when we consider war poetry, we think of solemn denunciations of conflict and killing. For example, Wilfred Owen's Dolce et Decorum Est, which contrasts the rhetorical zeal that encourages war with the brutal reality faced by soldiers. What Whitman does through his war poetry is more complex. He demonstrates both a pro-war and anti-war attitude at different stages throughout the conflict. Represented by a shift away from the enthusiastic and jingoistic tones towards more sombre ones. But he also engages in a highly subjective discussion on war in relation to himself and his life, as something that can produce extremely potent emotional experiences, be they positive or negative. My research shows that war, while a tumultuous phenomenon, doesn't necessarily always result in drastic change, either on the level of the individual or society affected. It certainly has the power to draw out new themes and ideas, but this can happen within the framework of a pre-existing style or way of thinking and writing. It also demonstrates the power of poetry and literature more broadly as a crucial part of the cultural record that can be used for interpreting historical events. As Robin Williams' character states in Dead Poets Society, we don't read and write poetry because it's cute, we read and write poetry because we are members of the human race, and the human race is filled with passion. My research examined how those passions manifest themselves and how they interact with the perpetually recurring tropes of human history, war, death, and tragedy. Thank you. That's all there is in terms of the student presentations. I'd like to thank you all for coming to the symposium. I hope you enjoyed uh, the presentations as much as I do and uh, hope to see as many as possible back here tomorrow for the open day. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? 
ANU reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.